Have you ever struggled to make a big decision? Ever had a decision in front of you that just weighed on you and it maybe kept you up at night or woke you up in the morning, it distracted you when you were trying to focus? In, in recent years, there's been a new term that's emerged to describe the physical effects that we experience when we carry around an unmade decision, and it's called decision fatigue. That there's a physical, physiological impact that our mental decision-making process has on our body. And, and there's, there's some big decisions that some of you may be facing today. Maybe it's the decision to, to start dating again. Maybe after you've gone through the loss of a spouse or maybe after you've been through the end of a relationship. Maybe it's the decision to apply for a job, to pursue a promotion, to hit send on that submission or that resume. Maybe it's the decision to have a hard conversation Maybe there's somebody you know you need to talk to. You know what you need to say. You've been carrying that around, but you're just scared to step into that conversation. Maybe it's to put up a boundary, to say the two-letter word that most of us consider a four-letter word, no, and, and to put up that, that place of safety to help the relationship be healthier. What I've discovered over the years is that especially when we've been through seasons of grief and loss and pain and disappointment, especially on the other side of a moment that we didn't see coming, it can be incredibly overwhelming to make a decision and to move forward. Sometimes that sense of, of courage and, and boldness feels completely absent after we've been through a season of loss. And so today I'm not coming to share with you all the answers because some of those decisions I struggle with myself. But what I hope we learn today from the passage of Scripture we're going to hang out in is a bit of a map for us, a guide that will help us take our next steps as we move forward and follow where God is leading us. As I was working on this message, my, my memory went back to a time about 16 years ago. I had graduated from college, and I took my first job at a church and the reason that I had an opportunity at this church was my predecessor had been fired very uh, infamously for having inappropriate relationships with people of the opposite sex. So I knew my number one goal was not to do that. And so my, my kind of focus was I'm not looking for a relationship. I'm not looking for anybody. And so I was sitting in church one day, and it came to the time of the service. And again, this was like before COVID, like those before COVID times. It's the time of the service where we have everybody stand up and shake hands. All of you introverts were so excited for COVID because it ended that. Um, I've heard from many of you. Um, and so that, that practice ended. But back then we did that. So I stood up, I turned around, and there was a woman sitting behind me. And I put my hand out, and I said, hi, my name is Scott. And she told me her name. And we sat back down. Well, the next Sunday, I got up, and to be honest, I hadn't been paying attention. And I was sitting in the same spot, like a lot of you are, from week to week. I turned around, and I said, hi, my name is Scott. And she kind of indulged me and told me her name. Well, a third week happened. And I was sitting in the exact same spot, and she was in the exact same spot. And I stood up and turned and said, hi, my name is Scott. And she said, I know. <laughs> You've told me your name three weeks in a row. What's my name? And we're married today and have three children. 
that was how we met. I'm not sure why you're clapping. I was a total idiot. Um, so, so that was the beginning of us meeting. And it was the beginning of me realizing that this woman, again, I wasn't looking for anybody to date, much less marry at the time, was different than anybody else that I had dated. I had spiky hair and I lived in flip-flops. She, on the other hand, was an attorney with a dry cleaning bill. We were just in very different seasons in life. And I felt over my head and intimidated. And, and so as we begun to hang out and we begun to, to date, although we still fight over what our first date actually was, uh, I began to realize that, that I was feeling some emotions, not just a crush, but fear. I sat down with a mentor of mine at the time, and I said to my mentor, I said, she intimidates me. I'm afraid. You know, she was taller than me. She made more money than me. She was successful. She didn't need me. I was like, this is a different kind of relationship. And I can remember in that conversation, my mentor, uh, who we named our youngest son after, my mentor's name was Maxie. Our youngest son is Maxwell. My mentor said something to me that I've never forgotten, and it may be helpful for you regardless of where you are in that season of life. He said, Scott, the way I see it, you can run from it, the fear, or you can run to it. You can run from her and the fear that she's creating in you, or you can run to her. And that was the beginning of me realizing that throughout my life, I was going to have to rumble with this thing called fear. And most of us, if you follow the trajectory of our life, the decisions we make, the choices we make, the places we end up, a part of that story and journey is told through our relationship with fear. And I want to encourage you, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I'm still young, especially some of you, like you're, you're actually my kid, maybe my grandkid. Um, but I will just tell you that in my experience, you don't ever get beyond fear. Fear is a part of your life. Fear is a part of your story. But my encouragement to you is this. Fear can ride in the car with you, but it should not be in the driver's seat. That was a piece of wisdom somebody gave me last year that was so helpful. And so here's our big idea today as we dive into the scriptures. We never get rid of fear, but we can always move forward in faith. If you're facing a crossroads, a decision, a challenge in your life, I'm not sure you're ever going to get rid of fear. But in the face of fear, you can move forward in faith. Now, if you're here for the first time, I'm so glad you're here. I want to catch you up to what we're talking about this spring. We're in a series right now called Didn't See It Coming. And we're exploring a book in the Bible called Ruth. And we're looking at a woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law named Naomi and the events that happened to them that they didn't see coming. They didn't plan for it. They didn't expect. They were surprised by it in the same way that many of us have gone through a season in life or in the midst of a season in life that we didn't see coming and we didn't expect. And we've been looking at how God is working in their life and in their story. Last week, I was out of town. My friend Jeremy did a great job talking with us about Ruth 2. But Ruth 2 was full of so much stuff, he didn't get to everything. And there's a part that we have to get to today before we jump into Ruth 3. So if you have your Bible today, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Ruth. If you're new to the Bible, it's near the front. It's the eighth book of the Bible in order. It's right after Judges, right before First Samuel, it's just two pages. It's really short. But in Ruth 2, at the end of Ruth 2, is something that, that gives us some context, some emotional context and color to this story. 
Beginning in Ruth 2.20, if you don't have a Bible, you can just watch the screen. This is what we read. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, who's named Ruth, May the Lord bless him, and him is reference to a man we met last week named Boaz, because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Now, in the day of Ruth, this is a very different culture. It's a very different world. It's a very different time. In that day, if, if a woman's husband died and she became a widow, the, the, the culture had put together a way for that family line and the inheritance and the land to stay in the family. And it was through a process known as leveret marriage. It's called leveret marriage because the Hebrew word lever means brother. And so often this was a brother or a family member who would have a child with the widow to continue on the family line. And what we see here is that Naomi recognizes this and begins to have some hopefulness about who Ruth has met and what their future might be. And if you were here two weeks ago, you know that when we met this woman named Naomi, she's bitter. She's angry. She wasn't even letting people call her by her given name, Naomi, because that name means sweetness. She wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. And so what we see in this moment is a little bit of what some of you who are early risers experienced this morning. I was in California last week, and I got up early. The, 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 the light had started, but the sun hadn't risen. It's that period of dawn in the morning where it's no longer night, but it's not really day yet. And I hiked to the top of a hill, and I watched the sun come over the, the mountain range I was in. And, and that's a little bit of where Naomi is. She's no longer in the darkness of bitterness, but she's not fully in the hope of day. And some of you right now may be in that same place. You're like, Scott, some stuff's happened to me, and I'm not as bitter as I once was. I'm not as messed up as I once was, but I'm not fully back. And what we see in this moment is what God can do when you're in process. When you woke up this morning, you may have had a light switch in your room. And in a moment, it was dark and then it was light. That's how your lights work. That's not how your heart works. You don't immediately go from bitterness to healing. You don't go immediately from hopelessness to hope. It's often more of a dimmer. And what we're going to see is what God does while that hope is kind of coming up on the dim We're going to answer the question today, what did Ruth and Naomi do as dawn was breaking? And if you're taking notes, the first thing they did is they made a plan. Ruth and Naomi made a plan. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to to move from Ruth 2.20 down to the beginning of chapter 3. And here's how Ruth 3 begins. It says, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? Translation, shouldn't I find you a husband? Again, because this is a culture where that was not the job of you or Match.com. It was the job of your mother and grandmother and aunts. as arranged marriages. So verse 2, it says, Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he's finished and drink, eating and drinking. And when he lies down, 
Notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Now, to understand what's happening here, you need to understand something that's very hard for us in a a non-agrarian world where we buy our food at the grocery store versus people who grew it themselves. A threshing floor was a place where what was harvested was, was prepared to be eaten. So often it was like in this place in this picture, this kind of artist rendering, it's on top of a hill. And so all that was kind of harvested would be put in the middle. Those guys are kind of beginning to kind of rake it and sift it. And you'd have oxen that are yoked together would walk and begin to break it up kind of pieces and separating it's the same thing this kind of uh piece of wood is doing it's they're they're sitting on it standing up to add weight and they're kind of breaking up into pieces and as that goes these guys here with threshing forks and these guys or ladies here with threshing fans would begin tossing it in the air and the reason you were up high and the reason that this is happening at night is that higher you go and the later you go, the often you get a bruise. So as the wind comes in, they would throw the grain or the barley up and the wind would catch the light stuff, the chaff, and blow it away. And the heavy stuff, which you actually need to eat, would fall and be kept. And Naomi knows this is where Boaz is going to be because he owns a field. He'd be there with his stuff to ensure that it was threshed well and be there to protect it. That way it wouldn't be stolen. So Naomi says, hey, I need to find you a husband and Boaz is the guy we're going to go after. So Ruth, here's what you do. First thing you need to do is you need to wash. Now again, we live in a culture that is very wash-centric. Some of you take baths or showers once a day. Some of you in the summer do it twice a day. Some of you please your kids to do it once in a blue moon. But, but we, we wash. I read this week that Americans every day, every day, spend 450 billion gallons of water on bathing. It's a lot of water. This is a very different world. They didn't bathe that often. She says, bathe, put on perfumed oil so you smell good. Put on your new clothes, likely the dress that she wore to get married to her first husband or the dress she's saving to get married to another husband. And then she says, uncover his feet, which we'll talk about in a second. And as some of you are not feet people, I'm sorry you had looked at a photo of feet for the last 60 seconds. I'll turn it off in a second. But we'll mention in a little bit why feet are significant. But what we see here is something really important in studying Scripture. In studying Scripture, narratives are not always imperatives. If you remember high school English, an imperative is a command. Not everything you read in Scripture is a do it like this. For example, Noah gets off the ark, builds a vineyard, gets drunk on his own wine, ends up naked in his tent. Narratives are not always imperatives. (laughs) David's supposed to be at war. He stays home. sees another man's wife bathing naked. Maybe you know the rest of that story. Narratives are not always imperatives. So if you're saying, Scott, is this passage saying that women should ask men to marry them? Narratives are not always imperatives, okay? But what we do see here is something that I think is a transferable principle, that making a plan is an act of hope. If you have ever been hopeless before, you know what happened when you became hopeless. You stopped planning for the future. When you believe that your best days are behind you and not in front of you, you stop planning. 
you stop anticipating. You stop hoping. And what we see here with Naomi is the fact that she had enough of a rising hope in her to identify a potential husband for Ruth, who she told not to come with her just a few verses earlier because she had no hope of getting a husband. And she makes a plan to get that husband. That's a symbol of hope rising in the heart of Naomi. Now, I'm not sure Naomi saw that because often we don't see ourselves changing. If you've ever been around a family that has a baby and all of a sudden you see that baby six months later, you're like, oh my gosh, he or she has grown so much. And the parents go, oh yeah. They don't notice it because they're with that baby every day. The same thing often happens in us. We don't see ourselves becoming more hopeful, but from the outside, somebody goes, man, I, I can see hope rising in you because I can see change. And I just want to encourage you, you can know that hope is returning when you begin to plan for the future. The second thing we see Ruth and Naomi do is that Ruth stepped out in bold faith. Ruth stepped out in bold faith. Back into the text in verse 5, it says, So Ruth said to Naomi, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law charged her to do. And after Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, probably had cold feet, literally. He turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. Wasn't there when he went to sleep. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now again, this is a different culture, a different world. Let me translate this for you. When Naomi tells Ruth to uncover his feet, and then Ruth literally spells it out for him, take me under your wing, what she is saying is marry me. She's going to Boaz, and by uncovering his feet, she's giving him a non-verbal proposal. And then when he asks her, she goes beyond what Naomi says, and she literally spells it out for him. Take me under your wing is a way of saying, marry me. You're my family redeemer. Act on that. And as we mentioned earlier, he's doing this because he is a relative or a brother of sorts in this culture of leveret marriage. Now, again, this is not a way of saying, hey, like this is how it should happen. But if you ever did, you know, want to ask somebody to marry them and you're a woman, you have a Bible verse to fall back on here. So we'll just throw that out there. But what I think I want us to focus on is not who should ask or how they should ask. It's to put ourselves in Ruth's position. Under the cover of night, in the darkness, she goes and she takes a bold step. She goes and she uncovers his feet. She puts herself in a vulnerable position, not knowing what Boaz would do. She's known him for only a matter of weeks, maybe two months at most. She's seen him be kind. She's seen him be generous. 
she's seen him care about her situation and Naomi's, but she's not been given any indication that he's open to this. They've not written love letters. There's not been any contact. He's not pursued her. And so she goes there and takes a huge risk, a huge step of faith. And this is something I think it's worth pointing out. You cannot walk by faith without taking risks. If you're going to follow how God is leading you, there is going to be risks involved. In our culture, American culture, we have a high, high value on safety. We value safety above everything else. And sometimes in the church in America, we say things like the safest place to be is the center of God's will, which I have some problems with. Something wasn't true for Jesus. Something wasn't true for his many disciples who lost their lives. Something wasn't true for Paul. Something wasn't true for the many missionaries who've gone and been unsafe and lost their lives. Jesus promises us that when we put our faith and trust in him, our eternity is secure. He promises us in his final words before he goes to heaven that he'll be with us even to the end of the age. But within the boundaries of eternal security and him being present with us, there's a bunch of stuff that we don't see coming that we don't know how it's going to go. And so if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to value safety above all else, you're going to miss many moments he gives you because you're not taking risk. And we know how the rest of the story goes. Like we've read chapter three and four. We know what happens. Guess who didn't know? Ruth. She had no idea what Boaz was going to do. And yet she acted with bold faith. Here's the third thing we see. We see that Boaz and Ruth chose integrity. In the cover of night, in the midst of Ruth 3, the two of them choose integrity. Beginning in verse 10, we read this. Then Boaz said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You've shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. This is how we know that Ruth was afraid because he tells her, don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but plot twist, there is a redeemer closer than I am. So stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Now recognize in this room, for those of you watching online who I can't see, I'm speaking to a mixed audience, so I'll choose my words carefully. There is tension in this text. Sensual tension. Which often we have a hard time with in Scripture. But it's there. You have a single woman going to a single man in the cover of darkness to propose marriage. We know that there's a dynamic at play, not just male-female, but by age. Boaz is older than Ruth. Why? He calls her my daughter at every turn. I don't call people my daughter who are my same age. You call someone your daughter who's younger than you. We also know that Ruth is also more attractive than Boaz. 
Sorry, Boaz. We know this because Boaz says you could have gone for a younger man, whether rich or poor. Part of the reason why Boaz didn't pursue her is because he was older and she was better looking. You know, if they got together, it'd be like that phrase I heard growing up about outkicking your coverage. It's a couple, you look at them and go, man, he must be really funny because I don't see how this is working out. And so in this moment, she goes to him, he's shocked. And what happens isn't what has to happen. Because when you're in a moment like this and there's opportunity, the temptation you hear in your mind is no one will ever know. She could have heard it and pursued something with Boaz. No one's ever going to know. He could have done something as the power figure and assaulted her and no one would ever know because who are you going to believe in patriarchal culture the man who's wealthy and admired or the woman who's a widow and a foreigner and poor they could have gone after each other but they don't do anything of the sort what they do in the moment in the darkness is they choose integrity and i want to remind you integrity is not perfection it is consistency and humility in private and in public. It's choosing that whether people know or don't, whether you think they're ever going to know or don't, whether anybody's watching or not, you choose humility, consistency, and the right thing. And this is a big deal for me because many of you, many people in our culture are struggling with their faith because men like me have acted without integrity. Pastors, leaders, authors, speakers, experts, influencers have chosen to believe that no one will ever know. And then the truth was undefeated. The truth came out. And so if you're young or if you're old or somewhere in between, I want to tell you that somewhere in your life today, you're going to hear this temptation, no one will know. Compromise. No one will know. Give in. No one will know, do it anyway. And what we see in this moment is they had a, an opportunity to embrace this and they didn't. They chose integrity. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that Ruth waited patiently. This passage ends with Ruth waiting. Verse 14 says, So Ruth lay down at Boaz's feet until morning. She got up while it was still dark. And then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing over her head to kind of hide her identity and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. And she went into town. If you were here last week, he gave her half a measure, one week's food. Now he's given her 12 times that, three months food, likely weighing 60 to 90 pounds. She had to have to have carried it under her head like you watch a, a woman do in third world countries, Africa, Southeast Asia. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened to my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. 
what is most interesting to me in this text, something I learned this week for the very first time, is back here in verse 16, she says to, to Ruth does, Ruth and Naomi says to Ruth, when she comes back, what happened to my daughter? Which is kind of the natural question. I gave you a plan, you went and act on it, now that you're back, what happened? But another way you can translate that phrase, what happened to my daughter, is this. You can translate it, who are you, my daughter? Are you still Ruth, the widow? Or are you engaged? Are you the status you were when you left, or has your status changed? And we learn something next that I think makes <laughs> such a big deal to me if you're kind of following from chapter to chapter. In verse 17, we learn what Boaz said that the, that the, the, the writer of this book didn't record earlier. R Ruth says, he gave me this six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Don't go back to Mara, Naomi, empty. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard Ruth 1.21. Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Boaz says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. Go back full. See, I think what God is saying through Boaz to Naomi is I see you. You thought you came back empty but I don't want you to be empty-handed. Some of you today don't believe God sees you where you are. You don't believe God recognizes or knows what you're feeling and what you're going through. You feel empty, like you don't have what you need. And maybe God's word through Boaz to Naomi can be his word to you, that though you feel like God has brought you back empty, God is using a person, using a circumstance to make sure that you are not empty-handed. So God's speaking to Naomi, but he's also speaking to Ruth because Ruth has done everything she can, and now she's in the place that none of us like to be, the waiting room. A couple years ago, which I feel like is dog years if you count COVID time, we did a series called The Waiting Room, and this was the graphic. And what we said in that series is that though we often end up in medical waiting rooms, all of us end up in metaphorical waiting rooms. Inevitably in life, you will find yourself at some point waiting on God. At some point, you're going to end up in a place where you've done all you can, you've contributed all you can, you've, con you've worked the plan, you've been bold, you've risked, and then what you have to do is wait. And what we learn in the waiting room is that God does some of his best work while we wait. I wish he did his best work in short, quick periods so I didn't have to wait. But the truth in scripture and the truth in our lives is that God does some of his best work while we're waiting on him. And one of the reasons why waiting is hard is we begin to think, I don't see anything happening, so therefore God must not be doing anything. I found a quote from John Piper this week that speaks to that so powerfully. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Friends, this is a simple and sober reminder. You don't know everything. You don't see everything. You're not God. 
And he is at work in ways that we don't see, doing things we have no comprehension of in the moment. And if we'll wait on him, we will be able to see what he's doing because like Ruth, we wait for God because we can't redeem ourselves. You want to know what you contribute to the equation in your salvation? Sin. That's what you bring. You bring the need. That's it. God is the one who redeems. God is the one who provides. God is the one who saves. And so Ruth has done all she can, and now she has to wait to figure out who is going to redeem her and when. And I have to tell you, I I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to wait. To wait. Some of us can't even sit silent for five seconds or 15 seconds or not be doing anything. See, many of us battle with waiting because waiting reveals our desire for fear and control. Waiting reveals the places where we're afraid and waiting reveals the places where we have to be in control. And that may be the reason why you hate the waiting room. Because you're not in control and fear is in the driver's seat in your life. And what we see with Ruth is that she waits patiently for Boaz to do what she cannot do for herself. And this is why I began with the big idea that we never get rid of fear, but we can always move forward in faith. You may never stop rumbling, dancing, relating to that fear in your life. But does that fear get to write your future? Does that fear get to be in charge of your future? Can you feel that fear and act anyway? The lie is until you're stop, you stop being afraid, you can't move forward. I'll tell you, I wouldn't be married if that was the case. I wouldn't be a father if that was the case. And I wouldn't be your pastor if that was the case. You are going to feel fear. But you can follow him anyway. Let me talk to you about some ways you might find yourself doing it this week in our next steps. Here's the first one. Reject passivity and prayerfully make a plan. The first temptation that man faced was to not believe God. The second one was to be passive. And so sometimes in the church, we think that waiting means passivity, but there's a difference between waiting and being passive. Make a plan. And two, be bold in your obedience to the Holy Spirit leading you. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you've got a sense of how he's leading you, be bold. My wife contributes all of the musical DNA to our DNA mix for our kids. I am not musical. But when she played band growing up, they had a phrase, and it was called strong and wrong. If you're going to play your instrument and you're afraid you're going to be wrong, just go for it. The worst thing to be was half-hearted. So if you have a sense of how God's leading you, be bold in that. Trust him in that. Risk in that. Step forward in that. 
Number three, choose integrity when tempted. I didn't say be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect. But you're going to be tempted to do something different when no one will know versus the moments you think people will know. And I want to encourage you not to try to be perfect, but shoot for consistency, to be the same person in public and private, and in those moments in the light and those moments in the dark, realize that they are the same. And then finally, number four, trust in your Redeemer as you wait. You can't always control everything. You can't turn off the fear. But while you wait, the difference between being passive and the difference between being active is trust. You can always trust. And that's what waiting presses into us more than anything else is do you trust? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your work in our lives. We thank you for the opportunity we have right now where we are to trust you. We may not understand what has happened to us. We may not know completely what's coming down the pike at us. We may not feel in control. We may feel insufficient. And we may feel terrified. But this moment right here is a moment we can trust you. We can trust that you are who you say you are. We can trust that we are who you say we are. We can trust that you haven't left us or abandoned us. And we can trust that our future with you is absolutely secure. So we pray, like Ruth and like Naomi, that you would help us to take bold steps of obedience. We pray that you would help us to do what is in our hands to do. And if we've done that, to wait patiently. Jesus, may you do the work in us you want to do while we wait so that when the door of that waiting room opens and our season of waiting is done, we pray that we would be the people we need to be to step through that door and into that moment. We surrender ourselves to you, Jesus. And we pray that we would live with open hands, following, trusting you in the way that you lead us. And we pray that you would work a great story of redemption in our lives as only you can. In your name we pray, Jesus.